0: How are you guys good for those of you who don't know my name is jason coker i'm one of the co-ministers here you've now seen three cokers up front on the stage jason janelle and judah who is uh, happens to be our middle daughter um so thanks for coming and helping us out um a couple of things one uh, i don't know how many of you have ever gone to a church and filled out a survey on community organizing and political political action work Uh, But if this is your first or second or third time at the Oceanside Sanctuary, uh, you might encounter this sort of thing again. We believe very strongly that to be people of faith, that to follow Jesus Christ, to center our lives, organize our lives around the teaching of Jesus, means to put our faith in action in the community on behalf of those who are marginalized and oppressed. That's what this is about. None of us is here, I assume... Uh, just so that we can feel better about our high-minded ideals about the world. Uh, In fact, I do my best oftentimes to make you feel uncomfortable because I think that place of discomfort is oftentimes where our faith grows. And so that discomfort sometimes means leaning into these kinds of issues. How can we advocate for people who are struggling to afford housing? So Justice Works has done amazing work in just the last few years that they've been operating. Uh, But there are other ways that we try to put our faith into action. And uh, another example of that would be community groups, which many of you heard about recently. And at the beginning of my time up here, sometimes I use like, you know, pastoral uh, privilege to do an additional announcement. Today's no different. So if I could get just the next community group slide up, that would be helpful. There is another community group that is just now starting this week. It's Friday nights at uh, a local cafe here in Oceanside. It is hosted by the Dwyer Vonses, and I believe Ron is here. There you are, so Ron's waving his hand right there at the back. Most of our community groups for this spring started uh, several weeks ago, but their group is just starting this week. So that means if you haven't had a chance to get connected with a community group yet, this is a great group for you to connect with for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's on Friday night. Maybe that's a better night for you. Number two, it's just now starting. So if you haven't had a chance to connect with one yet, now's a great opportunity to jump into one without like jumping in the middle of their you know, season together. Uh, also I want you to know that even though this is called Pub Theology, if you go to this uh, our church website and look at the groups, you'll see this group is called Pub Theology, but that's just because we like to sound super edgy, you know? Uh, it's not really at a pub, it's more like a cafe that also serves beer. And so if you don't drink and don't want to drink, and the idea of a church group that drinks is weird to you, you don't have to, it's, it's okay. You can show up there and not order a beer, you can have a Diet Coke, that's what Janelle would do if she was part of that group. Third thing is, even though it's at a cafe, it doesn't mean that you have to order food. So you're welcome to brown bag it. Nobody will think that's weird, or you're welcome to just show up and enjoy the you know, company of the other folks there. You don't have to order anything. So this group is really wide open, and uh, the Dwyer Vosses are a great family. For those of you who haven't had a chance to meet them, I highly recommend that you especially get to know Sue. Ron, I mean, he's OK. Right? He's
1: out of town today.
0: <laughs> I try not to hold it against Ron that he went to the University of Chicago. But for the most part, They're they're great folks. All right, so we're going to continue our series uh, on resurrection. We're going to be spending the next several weeks all the way up into Pentecost looking at themes of resurrection. Last week, we talked about the other Mary and the three Marys who attended to Jesus during his crucifixion, and then the two Marys who were witness to his resurrection. Today, we're going to take a look at Luke chapter 24, as a kind of model for what resurrection, I think, looks like in our lives. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13. If you don't, we will be putting the passage right up on the screen. Before we jump in, would you just take a moment to pray with me? God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to gather, to raise our voices in prayer and in singing To lift our hearts up to you, to be shaped by a sense of your love and the way that you are calling us to put that love into action in the world and build relationships with people so that we can become more like you. We pray that as we read through this passage today, that you would help us to settle into this moment and that you would open our hearts and minds to maybe see things a little differently from your perspective. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, is for many of you a familiar passage. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole passage. I've kind of been into doing this lately. So just follow along with me as we sort of try to get a sense of this story as a whole. It says, now on that same day, that same day, by the way, is the day of resurrection. On that same day, two of them, that is two disciples, were going to a village called Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk along? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place in these days? He asked them, what things? And they replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, yes. And then he said to them, oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself and all the scriptures. And as they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead as if he were going on. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. Because it's almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And that same hour, they got up, they returned to Jerusalem, they found the eleven, and their companions gathered together, and they were saying, The Lord has risen indeed, he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road, and how they'd been made known to him in the breaking of the bread." So one of my favorite stories, this story of these disciples who on the day of resurrection, after experiencing the total chaos and confusion that must have been a part of that day for them, they are on their way to Emmaus, which is about seven and a half miles from where they were in Jerusalem. It'd, it'd be a long walk, right? Like, I don't know how much you all walk, right? Or what seven and a half miles feels like to you. But from here, seven and a half miles is about the in and out off of like Palomar Airport Road. Now, if you're like me, you're very familiar with the in and out on Palomar Airport Road. Uh, but you don't walk there, right? That would be a long walk. It'd be, like, I mean, it'd be good. You'd burn all the calories that you were about to eat. Uh, but this for them is a walk between essentially like downtown Oceanside and Carlsbad. It's essentially a walk home for them. Uh, They apparently probably live somewhere on the outskirts of Jerusalem in this kind of suburb of Jerusalem. But what's interesting to me about this passage is, of course, that the disciples are on this journey. They don't recognize Jesus. Now, I think what's happening in this passage is that we are being given an image of what resurrection looks like in our lives. Jesus, of course, is resurrected immediately, right? At the end of third days or the third day, he is resurrected. He possesses what's described as a kind of glorified body. He's still recognizable, but he's different in all kinds of ways. There's something qualitatively different about Jesus. You can walk through walls. You can see his wounds, but they're totally healed. He disappears before their eyes at the end of their little meal together. But for the rest of us, resurrection doesn't work that way. Resurrection is a process. We experience Easter, and then we spend the rest of our lives experiencing the unfolding of resurrection. Our hearts are being slowly raised anew. Our relationships are being redeemed. Our vocations, our sense of calling, are being shaped into the image of Christ. This doesn't happen for us all at once. It happens over time. I think that is part of the intention of this passage, to show that resurrection is a kind of long walk home, that we are on our way somewhere, and it unfolds over time for us. I think that's also the reason why the liturgical calendar has us spending Easter between Easter Sunday and Pentecost celebrating Easter over a period of six weeks. That sense that we are on a journey, that we are becoming what we were meant to be over a period of time is built right into the calendar. And and you've heard me say over and over again, every Christmas, because it's one of my pet peeves, that we, we think Christmas is on December 24th, but that's just the beginning of Christmas, right? There's supposed to be 12 days of Christmas, and just like there are 12 days of Christmas, there's supposed to be six weeks of Easter. We've just begun our journey These disciples have just begun their journey, too. But what's interesting is that they do not recognize Jesus when they see him. Why is that? If they were disciples, if they'd been with Jesus for a long time, why is it that they don't recognize him? And the text doesn't tell us. It simply says that their eyes kept them from recognizing who he was. I think we often assume that sort of God has mysteriously cloaked their vision for some reason until the very end of the story, but I think there's more to it than that. When you picture these disciples, what images comes to your mind? Do you, like me, automatically assume like two Stereotypically, I don't know, ancient Middle Eastern men wearing robes and sandals and maybe with hoods over their heads, you know, like all the flannel Jesus graph stories you saw as a kid in Sunday school. That's what I imagine when I think of these two disciples walking down this road together. But it's interesting that only one of these disciples is named. The other one is not. The disciple who is named is Cleopas. Cleopas, of course, is mentioned elsewhere in the Bible. In John chapter 19, verse 25, Cleopas is the husband of Mary. Elsewhere, Cleopas is called Alphaeus, which is the Aramaic version of this name. Scholars argue that this other disciple, this companion to Cleopas on the road, is very likely the other Mary. Because Cleopas is Mary's husband. This is the other Mary who was erased from the passage we saw last week. What's very likely happening here is not two disciples randomly walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus together, talking to each other about the events of the day. What's likely happening is a husband and wife returning home at the end of a a long, confusing day. A day where they expected one thing, which was to attend in some way to the buried body of Jesus, but a day when they discovered something completely different, when rumors of the resurrection of Jesus have ripped through their community. If you're wondering to yourself, is Jason taking a leap at assuming that this other disciple is Mary, Cleopas's wife? Conservative scholars tend to agree that that's who this disciple was. The Anglican scholar N.T. Wright, the Reformed scholar James Montgomery Boyce, even the Pentecostal scholar Jim Cole Rouse all agree that what's very likely happening here is that husband and wife who have committed their lives to following Jesus are walking home together and talking about what happened. Mary has again been erased from a key story in scripture. How does this change the way we might read this story? If this is a husband and wife who are walking home at the end of this day, how do we maybe hear these words a little differently? The worst argument that Janelle and I have ever had. Can you all remember the worst argument you've ever had with your significant other? I remember it very clearly. We were living in Riverside on the house on Patapa Street. And we were arguing about the O.J. Simpson trial. (laughs) Janelle just knew that that dude was guilty. It was obvious to her, clear as day. But I, on the other hand, was the fierce defender of innocent until proven guilty. I didn't know if OJ was guilty or not. It was irrelevant to me if OJ was guilty or not. I simply said, we can't possibly know. We don't have the evidence. We weren't there. There's all kinds of other possibilities. And this turned, of course, into a raging fight. (laughs) Mostly because I have to be right. I think at one point she might have retreated to the bathroom, which didn't stop me from like making my case on the other side of the door. But what if the argument that Cleopas and Mary are having uh, is not about whether or not Jesus rose from the dead, but whether or not Cleopas believes what Mary saw? Listen to verse 22 through 24, imagining this as a conversation between a husband and wife, where the wife claims to have seen something incredible. And this is Cleopas speaking to Jesus. Moreover, some women in our group astounded us, and they were at the tomb this morning. And when they did not find his body there, they came back and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of us were, who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as they had said, but they did not see him. What I think is happening here is Cleopas is doubting Mary's story. Cleopas is saying to Jesus, well, let me tell you what happened here. A group of women in our group say that they saw angels and say that they saw Jesus, but we went and checked it out and we didn't see him there at all. This is an argument between two people who see things very differently, two people who have different perspectives on what actually happened. The women said this, but we could find no evidence. This is more than a gender difference. This is a power dynamic. This is one person holding on to one kind of knowledge as superior to another. This is one person saying, my sense of reason, my demand for evidence is more critical, more important, more authoritative than your lived experience. This is the exercise of dominance by one group over another. And what happens? Jesus says to them in verse 25, Oh, how foolish you are. Jesus is not just telling them that they are foolish. He is telling Cleopas that he is foolish. Because Cleopas has discounted the lived experience of Mary. And then Jesus goes on to explain why? According to Hebrew scripture, according to prophetic words, that this is exactly what should have happened. that This is what they should have expected. And then an interesting thing happens. Jesus invites, or Jesus uh, continues down the road as if he is going home, and they invite him to their home. And they invite him to their home, and it says in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. This is, of course, I, I think a powerful image of communion. Communion. Communion is the moment when their eyes were opened and they could recognize Jesus. I think that's significant to this story. If the problem at the heart of this story is a power imbalance between two people, is one person holding a sense of dominance and superiority over another, then communion is the place where that playing field has been leveled. That is what we do when we celebrate communion. The whole point of it, the reason we come to that table together is to say, it doesn't matter who each of us are individually. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter our race, our gender, our sexuality, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status. At this table, because of the grace of God, we are all equal. We are all the same. At the beginning, their eyes were kept from them. They couldn't see Jesus because they were locked in a disagreement. They were stuck in a power imbalance. They were in bondage to the way that the world exercises power as an expression of strength over weakness. But the Table of Communion is where we let go of that. The Table of Communion is where we refuse to engage in those kinds of power imbalances. The whole reason our church and the tradition that we're a part of practices communion every single time we gather is because back in the middle part of the 19th century, churches had fallen into the habit of using communion as an expression of power. They would refuse communion to people who didn't vote the right way, or think the right way, or adhere to the right creeds. In other words, the table of communion became a place where power was reinforced. Here, we try to let go of those power games. We say it doesn't matter what you think, how you believe in God, or how you vote, or what your sexuality might be, or what your socioeconomic status might be, we let go of all of those power dynamics for a moment and come as equals to the table. We stop trying to control and coerce each other. And I think the story ends by saying that when we do that, whether it's a husband and a wife, or friends, or family members, or church members, when we let go of those dominant expressions of power, we can finally see Jesus. Jesus becomes clear to us. Because, of course, we need each other. Cleopas needed Mary's perspective. I need yours. You need each other's. And this is where resurrection becomes real in our lives when we accept each other as we are, not on your terms, not on my terms, but on God's terms of grace, so that we can live lives of resurrection more fully like Christ, amen? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to continue exploring what it means to live out a sense of resurrection in our lives. Pray today for your uh, blessing, for your sense of presence in this space. We pray as a congregation that you would help us to open our eyes and see past the way that we use our differences as opportunities to leverage power over each other. And instead, that we would embrace a sense of love, a sense of equality, that we would receive the grace that you have to give us, the empowerment that you have to offer us, and that we would share it generously with each other. We pray that you'd make this real in our everyday lives. In Jesus' name, amen
1: well thank you all for joining us if you like what's happening here we've got some quick ways to get involved beyond here first is our six-week zoom class how not to read the bible is coming up the uh, 16th of may that date has changed so we've shifted that Uh, It's a great class that Jason developed, what, three years ago? Something like that. Very popular class. Uh, If you really want to learn how to read the Bible in a more inclusive, intelligent, faithful way, join us for that. Uh, Next up, we are going to start a little partnership with Brother Benos, which is an organization that really helps us out at the pantry. Uh, So this is a big volunteer opportunity where we're going to help serve breakfast to the homeless. Uh, We've got two dates, April 28th and May 26th. So if you're interested in that in the morning, go ahead and reach out to us and we will get you plugged in for that. And lastly, we've got our book club coming up, which is every first Thursday. This time it is called A Generous Orthodoxy by Brian McLaren. Uh, Brian McLaren is a very prolific author, especially in the space we're kind of in. So it's a great book. I think you'll like it. And lastly, some exciting news. Who, uh, Who got to park in that fancy new parking lot today? Huh? Yeah. Well, good job. Uh, We are now going to be parking there if you'd like so that is um, Something we've been working on for a while. So feel free to park there from now on Uh, Just don't stay there too long after church because you know after church We will lock it up again, and we wouldn't want your car to be locked in so Feel free to park there from now on. That's really exciting. We're happy about that and for all this you can go to the website scan the QR code and lastly if you'd like to support our mission you can head on to the website and we've got boxes in the back as well. So may the peace of God be with you. Also with you. Joy's going to take us out. Let the church